Good morning, Village Church. What a beautiful day, huh? Praise God. All you that are uh, with us online, welcome. We're glad to be together as a church family this morning. We are uh, in week seven of a series we're calling Rechurch. And the idea of the series is that we want to get back to, to who the church is and what the church does after a year that we've been sort of fragmented in some ways, that, that we want to be reminded of what the church is and what the church does. And in week seven, we're here uh, reminding ourselves of the seventh mark of the church. And the seventh mark of the church is this, that it's a submitted church. It's submitted to godly leadership. The church of Jesus Christ is marked by a submission to godly leadership. We are an ordered people. We are an ordered people. We, we have an order to the things that we do and how we are led. Some of you here, we are an ordered people, and you might hear we are an organized people. And, and for some of you, you hear order and you think, please tell me more because I love order. I love all of that, right? For others of you, you're like, when I hear ordered people, I hear organized people. And when I hear organized people, I hear organized religion. And when I hear organized religion, I hear abuse of power and authority. And there has been abuse of power and authority in organized religion. And, and that's why many people have decided we're just going to kind of do our own thing. We don't need a church. We don't need to be submitted to godly leaders. We can kind of do our own thing. We're Christians for that matter. The house church movement flourishing with a lack of godly leadership over and in it. can't tell you how many times I've heard over this last year people just saying, yeah, we're, we're just gathered with a group of Christians. We don't really have any leaders or anything like that. But there's this guy in North Carolina and we stream his thing and we just kind of all together are the church. And I'm wondering, is that really the church? The church is submitted to godly leadership. And I know some of us have an aversion to this idea of submission in general and submitting to leaders in particular because we've been let down. We've seen the abuse of power and authority. It has been this way from the beginning. And what I mean from the beginning, from the beginning of the first sort of Christian leaders that we see, from, from the beginning with the disciples, we do see an, a misunderstanding of and even an abuse of authority. By this point in Mark's gospel, all the disciples have been given leadership responsibility by Jesus and have learned something of what it means to be a leader in his, his economy. In Mark chapter 3, Jesus appoints the 12 and he gives them power and authority to, to teach and to cast out demons. Though that, that seems like authority to me. By Mark chapter 6, he sends them out. Not the 70, he sends out the 12 and he adds one thing. He's not only giving them now power to teach and to cast out demons, he adds the power to heal. It seems like a lot of spiritual authority. By Mark chapters 6 and 8, Jesus has enlisted them in the feeding of the 5,000 and then the feeding of the 4,000. So they are teaching, they're casting out demons, they're healing, and now they're serving through, through distributing the food and taking up the leftovers. They're, they're meeting the everyday needs of the people. They're, they're in front of the people. There are thousands of people at this point. And here are 12 guys at, at, at the center with Jesus helping them. They are clearly the leaders. And yet despite all of this, we see this entitled and self-promoting and self-focused view of leadership starting to creep in to the lives 
of the disciples. And in Mark chapter 9, they're on their way to Capernaum, and it says, and they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they'd argued with one another about who was the greatest. They kept silent because they had learned enough about what it means to be a leader in God's economy by now to know that Jesus wouldn't be impressed with their conversation. He wouldn't be cheering them on about this conversation about who is the greatest. They knew intuitively, let's just keep quiet about this one. And by the time we get to Mark chapter 10, it's not just the 12. It's not just the whole group of leaders that are considering this idea. Now it's worked its way to the very center of Christian leadership at this point in the life of God's people. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. When I read that verse for the first time preparing for this sermon, I thought to myself, I wonder if the people that heard the Gospel of Mark read out loud for the first time, when they heard that verse, looked back and forth to each other and wondered, should we laugh or should we cry? I mean, we want you to do for us whatever we tell you, whatever we ask of you. I mean, do you feel the weight of what's happening here? James and John were in the inner circle of Jesus' leaders. James, John, and Peter, those three were what we might call Jesus' executive leadership team. What caused them to have such a presumptuous approach to leadership? What caused the executive members of his leadership team to have this presumptuous approach to leadership? Well, maybe it was their social status. I told you a couple of weeks ago that, that Zebedee was a, a wealthy, powerful name in that day and culture. And maybe they'd been raised in upper middle class, middle class homes, uh, uh, upper class homes, and, and they had power and authority based on relationships and influence. Maybe it was their social status that caused them to have a presumption about their leadership ability in place. Maybe, maybe it was their natural giftedness. They were called the sons of thunder for a reason. I mean, these guys had personality and charisma. Maybe it was their natural giftedness that people saw. Maybe, though, it was the public recognition of these things, their social status, their, their natural giftedness and charisma, and, and people are recognizing that. Peter, James, and John are mentioned more than any of the other disciples, much more. So they're getting recognition and affirmation publicly. That, that could make a leader presumptuous about their place and their role. You know, the great thing about the Bible is it, it, it gives us some balance. That there's nothing inherently wrong with being part of a certain social status or, or, or group. I mean, if you're born into a middle class, upper middle class, upper class home, that's not inherently wrong in and of itself. It's not inherently wrong if you have a natural giftedness. It's from God. And it's not inherently wrong when people recognize something in your giftedness or in and how God's wired you as a person or in this case as a leader but when those things become the foundation of the way you think about your leadership you have drifted a long way off from Jesus economy of leadership how does Jesus respond to this presumptuous approach to leadership and we see in verse 36 look at it with me And he said to them, did you seriously just ask me that? 
Okay. And he said to them, what is wrong with you? All right, we chuckle, and, and, the, and the point is this. I, we, we could go on with 10 more of these, right? Like, there are so many things that we, we could think, this is what, how Jesus responded. I mean, it would make sense to us, too. But, okay, so this was real this time. Look at verse 36. And they said to them, and he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? Jesus isn't, isn't phased by this. Jesus does not avoid the request. Jesus certainly does not, you know, accommodate, <laughs> you know, the, the request or affirm the request. But, but straight down the middle, Jesus addresses the request. And, and he teases it out. He draws them out. And he gives them permission to say what's really on their mind. And guess what? They do. Look at verse 37. And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at the left, in your glory. Now, in Jewish custom, the person that was most important was always at the center, physically at the center. So if you walked among a crowd in that day, everyone knew who was most influential, most important. And that person would stand at the center, and everyone else would physically orient their presence, their bodily presence, around that person. And people knew their social status and their community status. And, and so the second gifted person or recognized person would stand on the right, and the third recognized person would stand on the left. And then it kind of ended because you can only have so many people like that, right? So the guy that's important at the middle, and he's got his kind of two lieutenants. We know how this goes. We've seen pictures of thrones and things that are set up. This is the way that it works. It literally worked that way physically with people's physical presence. And so James and John see Jesus going up to Jerusalem, and he's rising in power. And they want to attach themselves to his power and honor, to gain some kind of power and honor for themselves. And in this, we see one of the first lessons in this passage about Christian leadership, and I think it's this, that, that a great temptation of Christian leadership is wanting to honor Jesus, listen to me, while also honoring ourselves. It's subtle, but we want to honor Jesus, but we also kind of want to honor ourselves. Look, no leader among God's people is going to stand up and say, I want all the honor, because we all intuitively know Jesus gets that. He is at the center. Everyone knows that. Wherever he is, we all order ourselves around him. No leader among God's people would ever say this out loud, except for these guys, apparently. <laughs> but James and John say out loud what some Christian leaders secretly hope that they can gain honor for themselves by getting close to Jesus. Commentator, theologian James Edwards says it this way, how easily worship and leadership are blended with self-interest, or worse, listen, self-interest is masked as worship and leadership. How does Jesus respond to being used in this way? I mean, does it feel like to you that that Jesus is getting used here? Do you like getting used? How does Jesus respond to getting used in this way? Look at verse 38. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Jesus responds with loving truth. They don't understand. 
They don't understand what real leadership in his economy, his economy is all about. And you know what? Most young leaders at this point in their leadership journey, most of them don't. And, the, and they did not. I can remember the day when I helped to plant a church, and, and I was a very young leader. And, and I saw the leader of our church preaching and teaching and leading. I saw a lot of the public affirmation that he was getting. I saw some of the perks to leadership that he had. I, I saw the influence. I saw all those things. And in my mind, I kind of secretly thought, that looks pretty great, you know. And then about, a, about 10 years into the leadership of that church, he, he went away on a sabbatical one summer, and he came back, and he said, you know, I think I'm called to other things. And, and everyone kind of looked to me to be the leader. And I thought, oh, gosh, you know. And, and secretly, though, a little bit in my heart, I was like, oh, finally. Like, I, I could do those things, and I could be that, you know. And, and it, only, it only took a couple of days of having that actual mantle of leadership or position of authority for me to realize I had no idea what I was talking about. I had no idea what I was asking for. Most aspiring Christian leaders don't understand the kind of suffering that goes along with being a leader of God's people. Jesus uses two metaphors to, to help them get it. He says, he says, can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink, and can you be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? The two Old Testament imageries, the cup is an image of something that's ordained by God in the Old Testament. And sometimes it's good things, helpful things. Most of the time, it's hard things. <laughs> it's, it's, it's suffering. It's God's wrath. It's things like this. And I think in this context, it, it definitely, it, there's a deeper meaning that Jesus is going to get to later. But, but for now, there, it, it's suffering. Baptism is, is an image of, of being forcibly plunged into something. When we watch people get baptized, you know, two people stand on either side and sort of forcibly plunge them into the water and then back out. But in Christian leadership, the forcible plunging is into suffering. And so if you combine these two images of the cup and the baptism, I think what Jesus is trying to say is that Christian leaders will be forcibly plunged into suffering that is ordained by God. I want you to hear that one more time, especially if you're young and you're a leader, you want to be a leader. Christian leaders will be forcibly plunged into suffering, and it's ordained by God. You might be thinking, well, what kind of suffering is that? I mean, look, when I look at Christian leadership, I feel like you guys are kind of up front. You know, you, you've got kind of recognition and influence. Uh, people take you out to lunch, you know. They might, you know, throw you their vacation cabin for your family to go away to. Like, there's all kinds of perks, right, that come along with being a Christian leader. Sometimes. But there is a real suffering that comes along with being a Christian leader that I really didn't know about, but I know about now after 20 years of being one. There is a relational suffering that you don't know in the beginning. And I can tell you that, that for Dean and I, sometimes it's hard for us to want to get close to people. We kind of keep them at arm's length sometimes at this stage because, because so many people have gone away or moved away or done something to harm or offend or hurt or break or fracture the church in some way. And we're kind of keeping you at arm's length a little bit. And, and forgive us if we do, but we've just been wounded too many times. There is a relational cost to this. And because of that, there's an emotional cost to it. That you, you don't know the weight of it until you know the weight of it. 
Sometimes there's a mental cost to it. You're, you're trying to reconcile, was that me? Did I do something wrong to, to fracture that? Did they? And, and it's not like a mental health issue. It's just like you want to think rightly about things, and there's a weariness to that. And I got to tell you, this week I sat across the table from a guy who's a, a prominent leader in a prominent sort of brand name church that's, that's gone through some really hard things. And, and we had a long lunch, and, and he smiled most of the time, and he talked positively most of the time. I think maybe he thinks that, you know, that his church has a cough when they really have cancer. He's trying to be positive. But I know the sound of that voice from experience. And I, and I know the look in the eye. I know this stuff. And what I know is that he's physically exhausted. And you can see it in his body, you can hear it in his voice, and you can tell in his eyes because there is a physical toll. He has more gray hair. It's not the reason I'm bald, but it's one of, okay? It's one, it's one of. You get the point. This is still going over the heads of the disciples. You can tell by their answer. They said, we are able. And James and John say out loud what many leaders would never say out loud, again, but quietly think in the back of their minds, that they have this, they, they got it, that they can handle it because of their social status or their natural giftedness or all the affirmation that they've got. They're like, yeah, 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 I, I got this. I can handle this. James and John have been listening to too many, you know, productivity, productivity and self-actualization podcasts, right? There's like too many of those things that they have been listening to. They're like, yeah, 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 we, we got it. How does Jesus respond to this sort of leadership naivete? Verses uh, 39 and 40. Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant, but it's for those for whom it has been prepared. Jesus tells them two things. Suffering in Christian leadership is a given. <laughs> but positions of honor are also given. They're, they're not earned. Jesus tells them that they are going to grow as greater and greater leaders, and they're going to have greater and greater suffering as they lay their lives down for more and more of God's people. And that's going to happen with them after the resurrection of Jesus, which we'll talk about in a moment. The longer you lead in a godly way, the more suffering you will ultimately experience. And we see that James was actually finally killed by Herod, and John was exiled to be by himself on the island of Patmos. Jesus tells them that leadership in his economy is not earned, though it is proven and it is tested, but it's, it's given, it's gifted. The interesting thing is that Jesus doesn't say that these positions don't exist. This is kind of an aside. I have two asides here. One of them is Jesus doesn't say these positions don't exist. It's just not for James and John, maybe. It's just, it's, it's for the Father to appoint. And I was thinking to myself, if it's not James and John, it doesn't sound like it is, who would it be? I was thinking this week, you know what, it's probably some pastor in India that's just planted like a gajillion churches, and, and there's all of these disciples that are being made, and lives that are being transformed, and no one knows his name, and he hasn't written a book, and he's never spoken at a conference, but like, it's probably him. It's probably some dude and his wife in Africa who have been planting churches in their village and it's expanded and it's gone like viral and there's all these converts and there's all this fruit and people walking in the spirit and no one even knows their name. It's probably someone like that. 
But in the midst of this, we, 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 we see another little secret insight into leadership in God's economy, and it's this, that, that all leaders should be both in authority and under authority. And I can just tell you, in, in, in our church, that's the way it is, that, that I'm the lead pastor of our church, but like at a pastor meeting, I don't get two votes when Josh Sales gets one. Like, I am a person who is in authority, clearly. But I, I also think I'm clearly a person that's under authority. And every leader in our church is both in authority and under authority. That doesn't change for anyone. Okay, back to our story. How does this entitled, self-promoting, self-focused kind of view of leadership affect the rest of God's leaders and the rest of God's people? It, when, peop- when leaders act like this, how, how does it affect the others? Verse 41. And when the, hurt, when the ten heard it, they, they began to be indignant at James and John. Well, for one, it creates conflict among God's people. They became indignant. That word indignant is like, it's a kind of anger that you can't, almost, you can't even almost describe with words. You're so angry that, that indignation is the only word that our language has to describe it. You are fuming. It creates conflict and it creates division. This is the only time in the Gospel of Mark that James and John, their names are mentioned apart from the 12 or apart from Peter. They're on their own. They're separated, divided from the rest of God's leaders. And you know what's interesting? Mark's Gospel was written by Mark, informed by Peter. It's interesting. Peter remembered this. (laughs) Peter remembered this. It was always Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John. James and John. You see how Peter's gotten edged out, and Peter's like, oh, I remember that time. Because those kind of things, they, they wound and they mark a leader. Jesus sees the division that's happening, and he, and he gathers his disciples together. Actually, in the next verse, it's going to say Jesus called them together. And this word called means summons. Jesus sees the fracture that's happening because of this kind of leadership, and, and he summons them to himself. He gathers them together. And as he does, I think he tells them two really significant lessons about leadership. We see him in verses 42 to 44. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. I think the first thing that we see here is that Christian leaders are servants. They are not sovereigns. Christian leaders are servants. They are not sovereigns. The rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. This word exercise authority means, means literally to subdue someone or to have mastery over them. That's what, that's what the world does. That's what the Gentiles do. But Jesus says, not so among you. This not so among you phrase is an interesting phrase. It's, it's not, he's not saying it, it shall not be so among you like it's not going to be that way in the future. He says it's not so among you now. This is a current reality. This is the way that it is in God's kingdom. As much as it's a description of, of the way things ought to be, it's actually a description of the way things actually are in God's economy. And I think what Jesus is trying to say is, to fail to be a servant leader doesn't mean that we've fallen short of some ideal goal in the future. It likely means that we're outside of God's kingdom in the present. Are you with me? Do you hear me? 
This is outside of God's economy. So if you're currently leading in a self-focused, self-oriented way, you're outside of God's economy. You're not just failing to do something you should. You're not even, you're not even in the same realm. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. The interesting thing about a slave is a slave has no right to refuse. Whatever a slave is told to do, that's what a slave does. Jesus doesn't just use servant. He brings it to slave. He brings it to the base level. There's no refusing on the part of a slave. You have to do whatever anyone asks you to do or the person who's in authority asks you to do. And Christian leadership is not about power and position, but about empowerment through service. It's about empowering other people through service to them. And when they ask you and they have a need, your role as a Christian leader is to empower them and to serve them. Whether that's in your home or you're a community group leader or you're a deacon or a lead in this church or an intern or you're, you're at some point one of our pastors. Like that, that, is the, that is the drill, empowerment of others. And so when people ask you something, you might not be able to do it all yourself. But the obligation as a slave or servant is to find a way to empower that person in the things that they need. That, that's what it is. Christian leaders are marked by the number of people they serve, not by the number of people who serve them. All those years ago when I became a lead pastor and I, and I thought, oh yeah, that's exactly what I want to do and, and I want all those things that go along with that. And I told you, it took me a couple days to realize I haven't really understood what I asked for. There were so many people in our church that were coming up to me saying, congratulations, you know, congratulations. Like, oh, Skip, what an accomplishment, congratulations, you know. And it happened so many times that eventually I just paused people when they said it. They said, hey, congratulations. And I said, hey, look, I, I really appreciate you, and I, and I know what you're trying to say. I just want you to know, I think what I've learned already in just a couple days is all this means is that there are a lot more people that I have to serve. Not have to serve, have to serve. Like, that's all it means. It means that I was serving this group of people now in the life of this church, and now it's like the entire church. And, and now, now I have this whole group of people to serve. So if that's what you're congratulating me for, then thank you. A second lesson in Christian leadership. It's in our last verse, verse 45. And even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Christian leaders are sacrificial, not superficial. The disciples had seen Jesus serving so many people in so many different ways. But here Jesus is alluding, we know, to a deeper kind of sacrifice. Jesus talked about his death in the Gospel of Mark. This is interesting. And you can check this out when you get home. It might be a fun exercise. I don't have time right now, but, but you look. Mark chapter 8, 9, and 10. It only happens in Mark's gospel. Jesus predicts his suffering three times, clearly, in three chapters in a row, 8, 9, and 10. And every time he does, the disciples start talking about themselves. They start talking about who's the greatest. They, they start having a self-interested kind of focus. You go look it up when you get home. Every single time Jesus says, I'm going to go suffer and I'm going to die, they're like, 
how, we're pretty great, you know? Like, look how great we are, you know? And it's like, it, it's really strange. And it's unique to Mark's gospel. It's going over their heads. The whole thing, they're missing the whole thing. It's going over their heads. I think we're honest sometimes it's going over our heads. I mean, I can imagine, listen, I can imagine that I've been talking for what, I don't know, 20, 25 minutes? And about this idea of service and sacrifice. And I can imagine for, for some of you, you know, you've been a Christian a long, long time. And so, and so maybe, maybe you've been thinking in the back of your mind like, yeah, 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 yeah. I, I, I know. I get it. Sacrifice, service, we're Christians. Yeah, got it. I got it, got it, got it, got it, got it. Got it. Like a whole sermon on this, seriously? Like you, you just, I, we, we all know this. I don't know that we all know this. I don't know that we all know what Jesus is talking about. I mean, Christian leaders are not signing up for a superficial kind of sacrifice, but a substantial kind of sacrifice, like Jesus. Jesus said, I'm going to give my life as a ransom for many. Like, it's the cross is what he's talking about. That, that's the level of sacrifice he's talking about. And frankly, I'm not sure most of us understand what that fully really what that means, what kind of sacrifice that is. So don't let, let's not let it just go over our heads and, and get in the Mark 8, 9, and 10 sort of paradigm like the disciples. Let's just pause for a minute and recognize like Jesus is talking about not a superficial kind of sacrifice. Like, yeah, 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 I know we sacrifice little things. No, no. He's talking about a very substantial sacrifice. As Jesus teaches his disciples these lessons on leadership, He's also telling them about the most substantial act of service and sacrifice the world has ever known. And I think part of the reason he's doing it is because leaders are not the only ones that are self-interested. Leaders are not the only ones that can be tempted to be self-interested. Leaders are not the only ones that can be tempted to be self-focused. Leaders are not the only ones that can be tempted to want to, to subdue others or to have mastery over others. Jesus knows the deeper reality that all of us want to have mastery over God. That all of us want to subdue God. That all of us want to, to do what Tim Keller calls the de-godding of God. That in the beginning, it, it was true from the beginning. Not, not from the beginning of the disciples, but from the beginning of creation. When our first parents in the garden decided that they wanted to live their life as their own authority. They wanted authority over their own lives. They didn't want to be under God's authority. They wanted to be the authority. They wanted to be the masters. They wanted to, to, to subdue God himself. And so God has allowed people to, to go live their own life, to be the masters of their own fate and destiny, and it leads to destruction. But God is good, <laughs> amen? And God is gracious, amen? And so God came to us in the person of Jesus Christ. He wasn't content to leave us in this place of just, of just making a mess of our own lives and, and dying in our sin and apart from him. Like he came to us in the person of Jesus Christ and Jesus lived a life that was perfectly submitted to God. Perfectly obedient to God the Father. Perfectly submitted to God the Father on our behalf. Not just as our example, but, but as our, as our advocates. 
And he lived this sinless life on our behalf. And then he died on the cross in our place and for our sins. He took the cup and, and the baptism, the deeper cup that he was alluding to, he took it. The cup of God's wrath was placed on him. The deeper baptism, Jesus was plunged into it. The baptism of God's wrath upon him on the cross. So that all of our sin and guilt and shame from all the times that we de-godded God in our lives. And we said, no, 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 I'm God of my own life. All the time that we walked away from him and said, I'm the authority, you're not. Jesus took all of that on himself on the cross. So that when we place our faith and our hope and our trust in him, we, we get his record and he gets ours. We're forgiven then of our sin, of all the times we de-godded God and and, and we're free now to live our lives being submitted, joyfully submitted to God. And joyfully submitted to the leaders that God has placed in our lives. And I think that's connected to our good news this morning. And if, if you're new with us at the Village Church, we have this good news statement every, every Sunday, which is basically trying to take the uh, part of the truth of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and and the reality of this passage of scripture we're in, and the reality of your life, and trying to build bridges between those things. And I think the good news this morning is this, that Jesus has served us in a way that only he can, to give us the kind of life and leaders that we can only have through him. And this really bared itself out to be true in this story, actually. Like, like just a few years after this story, we see these uh, disciples who are now apostles, we, we see them serving God's people, laying their lives down for God's people, sacrificing themselves for God's people. They literally turned the world upside down through an upside down approach to leadership, serving and sacrificing. We see all the apostles doing it to the end. We see it happening. You know, I want to end our time by, um, by thanking you for something as a church. A couple weeks ago, um, I heard one of uh, the leaders in our network, who's been a leader in our network for a long time, say, um, say something about leadership. And it was, it was relayed to me, and I, I think it's very, very right. He said, you know, as pastors and church planters, we're part of a church planting network that's filled with church planters and pastors. And so as, as, as church planters and pastors, um, your people let you lead them. Like, don't be under the illusion that you're like, you're some like great pastor guy, you know, like you, you lead people because you have this like social status and great natural giftedness and you get all this affirmation from people. And so you're leading because you deserve to lead. No, no, you're leading because they let you lead. You, you could go to church wherever you want. And in these days of COVID, like, people are doing it. They're just doing whatever they want. And, and they're doing what they could have always done. And frankly, what they always have done is just go wherever you want and do whatever you want. There are so many churches in our area. It's not like the church in Philippi. There's one. No, no, no. It's not like that anymore. You can literally go wherever you want. Do whatever you want. Your people let you lead them. And so... As we close this time talking about being submitted to godly leaders, I, we, I realize that your pastors are not perfect leaders, but we want to be godly leaders and we want to be sacrificial leaders and we want to be servant leaders. 
And so on behalf of all of the pastors in our church, I just want to say thank you for letting us lead you. Thank you for letting us lead you. Um, We're all people that are in authority and under authority. And we realize that we have been given an authority by God. And you have placed us yourselves under our authority as your pastors. And I just want to say thank you for letting us lead you. It's, it's actually, it's a joy. It's, there's a lot of suffering that has gone along with it. But I, I, don't get me wrong. We enjoy leading you. It's a joy to lead you. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for leading us so well. You are the chief apostle. <laughs> You're the great apostle. You are the leader of all leaders. We thank you for leading us well. Lord, we, we thank you for being our example. You, um, well, we love this about you. You never ask us to do anything you're unable or unwilling to do yourself. And, and you have served as a servant, sacrificial leader. And so we all ultimately follow you. And so this morning, we want to confess that, that we place ourselves under your authority. And we just want to have a moment of confession to say, Lord, we confess we have not always willingly and joyfully placed ourselves under your loving authority. Lord, would you forgive us? Lord, we're also confessing we want to place ourselves lovingly and joyfully under your authority. And so we confess that now. And we pray and we ask it in your name. And we ask it for your sake, Jesus. Amen.